the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Do you feel despair, numb, or even hopeless when navigating addiction and mental health issues alongside someone you love? According to today's guest, Pamela Brinker, caring for a child, spouse, parent, or friend can feel like it's pulling the life from you. In her book, Conscious Bravery, Caring for Someone with Addiction, Pamela offers life-saving skills and crucial pillars for growth. Pamela is a psychotherapist who has treated thousands of clients and has developed tools and practices to teach conscious bravery. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here, Joan. You have a great show. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. You know, Pamela, your work, (laughs) the work that you do is so important. How did you get started doing this type of work? Years ago, I, in in the family in which I was growing up, I had a couple of cousins who took their own lives. And I, I became a psychotherapist, I think unconsciously wanting to prevent mental health challenges in my family. As I you know, got married and had my own children, I was sort of unconsciously hoping that I could get everything the way I wanted it to be and protect it. But of course, that's not possible. And so in my early 20s, I realized I would have to apply a lot of the same things I taught my clients to myself. And so a lot of your work is around something called conscious bravery. What does that mean? Conscious bravery is the capacity to do whatever's needed in any given moment. And we have the wisdom to not just assess the situation, but to move into action and do something. So it's not just a state of intention. It's active. Is this something that we're all born with or is an acquired skill? Everyone is born with the seeds of bravery, just like love or kindness. We all have the capacity to be brave, but as with love, we need to cultivate it. And that's what what I teach, that conscious bravery is something that we develop, we practice, and we, we train in it, as it were. And we develop it and become better at it by not just practicing in the calm moments, but also practicing when we're in the trenches in those times of devastation, just like with love, you know. When we're uh, in a relationship, it's not always easy. And we learn from the difficult challenges that that come our way. So taking this concept of conscious bravery, how do we apply that to addiction? That's what your book is about. So how do you blend those two things? So many people I've worked with all these years love someone or care about someone who's essentially walking in the wilderness of addiction and mental health challenges. You know, they have some substance use issue and or they have some mental health challenge like depression, or anxiety, panic. And so when we are conscious, we have to take care of ourselves. You know, there's so much out of our control when we care about someone who struggles. What we want to do is turn that inward to ourselves and focus on who we are. Remember who we truly are and also develop self-help, pardon me, and not just, not just self-help, but true self-care out of, out of deep compassion for ourselves, because that's how we're going to walk alongside someone we love and care about as they struggle. We have to show them that we can put the oxygen mask on our own face and remember who we are and care for ourselves. Even though it feels like the plane is going down, 
we put that oxygen mask on our own face and then we can be an oasis for them because we are able to protect our own happiness and they can see, oh, she's doing all right. You know, most of us are moms or uh, we have we have jobs as teachers or leaders, um, but, but the, the, those we care about are struggling and they look to us for guidance and yeah. we can't really do it for them. So, but what we can do is we can control ourselves and we can work on ourselves. And, you know, we're talking about addiction, but this is such a great point for any caregiver, you know, no matter what the situation is, because when you are taking care or, or trying to help another person, we do tend to not pay any attention to ourselves. We put everyone else's needs before our own. And like you said, if we don't put our own oxygen mask on, we can't breathe. So how are we going to help another person? So true. Absolutely. So, yeah, we have to remember who we truly are. And it's so easy for us as caregivers. It's a great point, Joan, um, that you use that word. It's so easy for us to focus on the other because they are going through these devastations and these highs and lows mental health challenges of either depression or, or mania or, um, or anxiety, panic attacks. And then they also turn to substances often, or, you know, we don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Sometimes they turn to substances, which then exacerbate the mental health challenges. But at any rate, what we can do in order to find our own bravery is to, to go inward and remember that we're more than our circumstances. We're more than our role as a mom or a teacher, we're more than this situation. And that takes practice because it's so easy to get distracted by the chaos going on in the, in the person's life that we care about. When we talk about someone who's addicted to whatever, to whatever it may be, we always tend to think it's this choice that they've made, like you've chosen this life. And, you know, sometimes people don't really have a lot of compassion for people who are addicted. What do you believe is at the root cause of an addiction? And is it really a choice that a person makes? That's a great question. It's complex because addiction and substance use issues are different for everyone. So uh, some people uh, are born with genetic predisposition towards substance use issues and they have trauma on top of that. And then the age of use is huge usually involved as a factor if they start using substances to cope with pain really young. But, but no one initially wants to become someone who's addicted to a substance. It, they turn to substances as the solution, as the answer right. to their pain or their problem. And, and that's where our job is to, to have unconditional compassion with boundaries, of course. But since addiction is different for everyone, there are so many different reasons why people become dependent upon substances, you know, they have shame, they have difficulty asking for help, they feel this tremendous aloneness. And, you know, the, the very nature of the substance use and the dependency affects the brain in such a way that it, it kind of becomes essentially at war with itself. And so it does become a choice problem and a wanting and a desire issue for them. But they don't necessarily choose that. No, I'm really simplifying this. But the way I kind of look at it is, you know, maybe in the beginning, like you were saying, you, you make a choice to try to numb the pain, to fill the void, to to whatever, to, to not want to feel something. But somewhere along the way, the drug, the demon takes over and you lose your choice at that point. And it really does consume you then. Absolutely. Yeah. I call it the beast of addiction because it is just such an overwhelming ride for the people that we care about. And I also say that they are in the wilderness. It's, and it's not just a wilderness with trees and meadows and, and hugely roaring rivers, you know, that, that they're out there by themselves. Um, it's not just that kind of wilderness. It's, it's also the concrete wilderness where they're, they're using street drugs and they choose homelessness because that makes sense to them rather than getting treatment. And I believe that, that they can face whatever they're going through with more with more ease at least with more solidity if we walk alongside them in the in the wilderness and so they know they're not alone and we can become unconditionally loving again with boundaries and show our compassion because as as you and I've talked about Joan they don't choose this it's it's almost a compulsion Pamela what does that mean to walk alongside them with boundaries. How, how do we keep from crossing that line of showing love and compassion to becoming an enabler? Well, we, we love them through their challenges. 
we welcome them into our homes. We greet them with kindness. We say, I love you. For me, as a mom of two sons who have struggled greatly with both addiction issues and mental health challenges, I have invited them over for dinner. Even when I knew they were using, I don't put, I didn't put uh, delusions around my love. My love is unconditional. But I might say, hey, if you're on the way to your job or your community service, I'll meet you at the gas station. I'll put gas in your car. So I have their back, but I'm not giving them cash necessarily, you know, straight up cash that they could use to go get a drug. However, I had to learn that the hard way. And that's one of the things that walking alongside someone in the wilderness means that we are learning how to how to do things as we go too. And so that's where it's so important to have self-compassion because we make mistakes. I've made so many mistakes. And yet I want to forgive myself and move forward in the present moment so that I can help them have forgiveness for themselves when they make mistakes. Because they, you know, relapse is just part of addiction and highs and lows and mental health challenges just keep coming. You know, we often think, oh, they've got it together now. It's going to be fine. It's been two years and they're finally through the wilderness. But one of the things I teach and that I've learned is that for many of us, our loved ones are going to be struggling for years. It might be five years or 10. It might be the rest of their lives where they have ups and downs and different kinds of mental health issues. And so to offer them hope, we want to see them as as human beings, as beings who have these challenges and not label them, you know, not label them as stuck forever and not label them as an addict. I don't like that word addict. I like the word people, people struggling with alcohol use or substance use issues. Well, that's one of the things that I love about your work, because you believe that so strongly. We should not label a person by a diagnosis. And we do that with everything. You know, that person's depressed. That person is this. And it becomes our identity. And so I I really love that you teach that. Thank you. Yeah, it doesn't help them to feel that they are something a label. So I don't ever say that a person is bipolar. They might have bipolar challenges. My oldest son is struggling with symptoms of schizophrenia right now, but I don't ever say that he is a schizophrenic. You know, I see him as someone who has gifts and abilities to see things differently, and I learn from that. And Mm -hmm. we can all do that. You know, any listener can know that we can live from wonder and joy rather than despair when we live from our whole beings and we see our loved ones and the people we care about as whole beings. We don't see them as broken. They might have challenges right now, and they might be severe. They might be in crisis off and on. But those are challenges that will will change. You shared that you went through some addiction issues with your son, and, and now you also shared that he has some other mental health challenges that he's navigating. Is there a strong correlation between a person who has a mental health challenge and addiction? Absolutely. I think that's one of the the least talked about issues in the addiction and recovery realm, that addiction and mental health really have the same roots. And addiction and substance use issues are not a character flaw, and they're not incurable. They are interwoven with mental health issues. And oftentimes a person hasn't, you know, both of my sons have had mental health issues that they didn't even really understand fully and neither did I. They had tremendous anxiety and they had depression that they kept to themselves. And and your listeners, I hope I hope you all can know that, that sometimes we don't see what, what our loved ones are really going through. And they may say, yeah, I've been worrying about this. I've been struggling. But we may not know how bad it is that they have wanted to take their own life. And so they turn to a substance because it's like a friend. It becomes familiar to them. And it becomes habitual because it's a friend they can always rely on. So one of the times my my youngest son was telling me he struggled the most greatly was late at night when there was no one to call, no one to hang out with, and he couldn't sleep. And so, you know, it was just easier to use a stimulant or methamphetamines or something that felt like comfort. Pimla, in your book, you write about six zones of experience. Can you share those with us briefly? I'd love to. I call those six zones of experience uh, our whole being awareness. It's an interesting thing that the world still uses the word, the word mindfulness quite often. And it's, it's a wonderful word that has served us well, mindfulness. 
you know, what we mean by it is that we are really present in the moment and we're really activated and we're vibrantly alive, even if it's a challenging moment. But it, it, it falls short because mindfulness identifies us with the mind. What I love is to tap, to, to tap in myself and to teach clients and, and uh, people in workshops that we can tap into six sides of our experience, as you're saying. And that's our minds, sure, our hearts, our bodies. And then we go inside to the deepest core self, which I call our essence. I like the elegant word essence rather than soul. And we also pay attention to our intuition and we're, we're tuned into the energy around us because our, our bodies don't really end with our skin. And so those six realms, body, mind, essence, intuition, energy, you know, those, those are the things that we can tune into in any given moment. And we don't have to just pay attention to what, what am I thinking right now or what am I feeling? Those are great things to pay attention to. But we can also listen to what's my body telling me? Is my neck tight? Is my stomach uh, rolling and grumbling? Is my inner essence telling me, be solid right now? This situation can be made better if you're calm. Is my energy vibing in such a way that I need to pay attention to that? So we can tap into all six zones of experience with practice really quickly and easily, just like we do when we're riding a bike or swimming. We're not just paying attention to what we're thinking or we're not just, if we're riding a bike, we're not just pedaling. We're, we're tuning into a lot more data that's available. And so we can do a quick whole being scan in any given moment and just ask, what am I experiencing in each one of those six realms, each one of those zones? And I think when we learn to do this, we really do have so much inner wisdom that we just don't pay attention to. And I, I know this is something that I've learned to do, and it has not failed me when I listen to it. Absolutely. It sounds like you've listened to your intuition. And as we were talking recently, you've had quite a story of reinventing yourself. And that's so much the story of, of many of your listeners we have to reinvent ourselves. But, but how do we do that? We don't want to fall prey to listening to what even our friends tell us to do or what the world says to do. We want to be able ha to have an, a hub available to us at any given time that is full of wisdom. And that is right here. It's accessible within us through our inner essence, you know, and all the things I just listed, our emotions, our thoughts, our energy, and our intuition is an amazing database that is really one of the, the truest hubs we can always count on because it stores information from all of our experiences. Pamela, what do you want those struggling with addiction to know? I would like them to know that they are loved and that there's hope and that they can be more conscious and awake and aware in any given moment because they, they've seen us do it. They've seen us live more vibrantly and awake and more aware. We're not just living from our fears. And that's one of the things that, that those who struggle with substance use feel is a lot of fear. And so I want, I want them to know that, that there's compassion for that fear and that that fear doesn't have to rule them. So another thing that I practice myself is I make fear an advisor. I don't see fear as this thing I have to fight or I don't see it as an adversary. I, I view fear as an advisor, one of the many advisors I listen to. <laughs> I listen to love and compassion and strength and assertiveness, all these other qualities that, that I have accessible. But all of us have all of these things accessible. And so if we can welcome them, then we can show those that we love who are struggling how to welcome these other things too so that they can make different choices in their better moments. I used to be afraid of so many things because I always had this notion of this horrible thing that was going to happen if I took a particular action. And what I started to ask myself was, you know, what's the worst thing that can really happen? What I learned is that basically anything I feared never happened. And, you know, it, it's like you, you dip your toe in your big toe in the water you, you face one, you face another, you face another, and it gets easier and easier. And you really start to see that all of these things that you've conjured up in your mind never happen. And and it just makes it so much easier to move forward with, with taking chances and taking risks. And, and that's just something that I've done in my own life. Oh, absolutely. Your story is my story and, and really the story of so many of us. 
that we, you know, one of the things I teach is that we want to be able to become more comfortable with discomfort and even overwhelm. And so in the moments I feel uncomfortable, I try to notice it. And, And I'm talking about extreme discomfort, you know, that extreme overwhelm where we're shocked and devastated all at once. And, and I encourage listeners to walk around the house or around your office with one hand on your belly and one hand on your heart with deep compassion for yourself and your own experience, breathing into what's happening, befriending all of your feelings, even if you're feeling terror, like you were saying, or, or fear, you, you breathe into that. Because the funny thing is we all know that we don't really maintain and perpetuate our fear by, by listening to it. It actually subsides. <laughs> Same with our discomfort and our overwhelm. It, it's only made worse by ruminating about it in our minds. And so when we can get into our our essence and our bodies and our hearts and be kind to ourselves and walk around again, breathing into our hearts, breathing into our bellies consciously with, with awareness, then we can find a level of peace amidst the, the chaos. And to be able to hold opposites like that is so empowering to be able to know, okay, here's that feeling again of, of absolute overwhelm. Okay, I'm familiar with this. I know how to work through this. I don't have to escape it or avoid it. I can be right here with myself in kindness and say, hey, I'm right here. I'll figure this out. Or we're right here if we're a family or a collective. We'll figure this out. And so we protect our happiness that way. That, you know, one of the things that I've learned over all these years that I would love to share too is that we can hold these opposites. There is so much joy in this life. And we want to to cultivate a capacity to find those moments of joy every day, even, even if it's just meaning that we smile, like I'm smiling at you right now, and hopefully you can, can feel it and see it. Or we smile at our loved one, even amidst their pain, just a tender, I'm with you kind of smile. So we can hold opposites, we can hold deep, deep pain along with some level of contentment, because our foundation has to has to be contentment or else we'll just we'll fall prey to, to to the chaos. The book is Conscious Bravery: Caring for Someone with Addiction. If you would like to learn more about Pamela and her work, you can visit bebrave.us. Pamela, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? Two things, there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to remission and recovery for our loved ones. And so because that's true, they will make their own choices and find their own way. And it's not up to us to fix them. We've got to know who we truly are and take care of ourselves and protect our own happiness. Pimla, thank you so much for joining us. It has really been a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, it's just It's just a joy. I hope your listeners are helped because the work you're doing is so important and I'm happy to be a part of it. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Esther Pippoli, helps families navigate life's difficult moments. She's the owner and founder of Loss of Life Advocates, also known as Lola. Her company provides confidential concierge grief support to families, business owners, and employers, helping them navigate the operational side of loss. Welcome, Esther. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. I'm happy to be here. Esther, I know you're a big believer in finding support to help heal from loss. Why do you believe it's a good idea for us to not go it alone? You know, I think that um, initially when somebody passes away, people 
um, want to give you space, right? They want to, you know, um, let you grieve, let you try to figure out what you want to do to process through your your loss, right? Um, and I, I think that with this, I always compare it to the crying baby. If you heard a baby crying, you would go to the baby and pick it up. Grief is no different than that. And so I think that when people try to say, you know, um, go go um, try something new, you can figure this out, you're, you're your own master of your domain, you can figure out how you want to process through grief on your own. I always tell people, no, that's not really what needs to happen. People need to know that they're not alone and that they need to seek help. And there's so many different resources out there, and it's going to be different for everybody. One family that goes through hospice and has um, a grief chaplain that's part of the process for a year after they go through hospice available to them may not want to go back to that person. Some people may not want to go to the church to seek help. Some people may not want to be part of a grief group to seek help. But I will say that it will be different for every person. And when you figure out what you want and how you want to process it and who you want to process it with, it's so important to know that you're not alone and that you do it with somebody that will listen and be there for you with an open heart. Um, the, the grief recovery method, which is what I work with a lot of my families when I triage with them, um, just to help them understand where they're at in their process of grief, um, I tell them, you know, you're, you're part of the timeline with your loved one. You are living through this grief and you need to know who your people are that you can go to and turn to for those moments when you feel like, I don't want to be alone. I want to be able to have people on my side um, to walk me through these dark moments. And of course, you know, I always tell people, it's good to have somebody that's holding the flashlight for you because you wouldn't want to send somebody down a dark alley by themselves. So don't try to do this by yourself. Try to always seek out the help you're looking for. And it's like anything else. You try on clothes. Some things don't fit the right way. You try on something different. So there's so many resources out there for grief that um, there's there are people there that are professionally there to help you and, of course, are certified there to help you. Um, and then, of course, your friends, your circle of friends are there to seek um, assistance for you. I remember when I went through a lot of loss in my life. I'm one of those people who I don't like to bother people. That's how I see things. And I had a lot of friends and a lot of support, but I just never like to bother. And I know that's a crazy way to think, but what do you say to someone like me who just feels like we have to be strong and do it? Um, I would say that, you know, you don't have to be strong, that this is your time to, um, allow yourself to be vulnerable. And we are really lucky that we have such great pioneers like Brene Brown that talks about vulnerability and you showing other people that it's okay to grieve and what grieving looks like, especially if you're a parent of a child. You know, they will not know how to grieve unless they see you grieve. And so for people that say, you know, oh gosh, I'm a stronger person. I need to just, you know, stiff upper lip and just kind of move straight through it and um, push through it. A lot of people um, will say, oh, I have to push through this. Um, there's no pushing. It's called wading through the grief at your pace. And it's okay to be able to, to pick up the phone and call your two or three people. And you'll know who those people are. That You can say, hey, you know, I'm just needing a little bit of a, a pick-me-up. I have people that I have on my, my, my list of callers that are my fill-me-up people. They fill my cup up. When I'm having a day that has been really down or it's been very low or I'm having a moment where I'm missing my own late husband or my late father or my late mother, I call them. There's three of them on my list that I, I seek out to them because I don't even have to call them and tell them I need assistance. They just know that by me picking up the phone that they need to fill my cup up. And it's because of the way they, they talk to me and the joy that they bring to me um, and reminding me how blessed I am in my life. So I think being strong sometimes is really easy for us to tell people um, or for us to feel like we don't need to seek help. But in all reality, it's okay for people to say to us and us for, to say to ourselves, it's okay for me to be vulnerable right now. What I've learned over the years as I've gotten wiser from that time is that if a close friend of mine was grieving and he or she didn't reach out to me for help, I would be upset by that because I want to help them. So then I, I tell myself now, well, the people who love me want to help me as well. And it makes it easier for me to, to now ask for help. Exactly, exactly. And that's really good for to note through your life, your your friends change, right? And your relationships change. So sometimes, you know, somebody that was maybe there for you as a young person um, and the younger part of your life, they're not really there for you now, but people and relationships change. And so it's important to notate 
how people make you feel. At the end of the day, when you're going through a loss or any type of life change, um, I always always use the thought that it's not what people say, it's how they make you feel. And so when you're going through a loss and you're grieving, you need to remind yourself, who are the people that make me feel good, that know how to make me feel whole, that know how to listen to me? And those people do change in your life through the years, but it is good to know who your people are. If you would like to learn more about Esther and her work, you can visit lossoflifeadvocates.com. Or as always, to hear more from Esther, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Esther. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Today's guest, Leslie Miller, is changing one of the oldest business models in the world. She joins us today to talk about how through Girl Friday Productions, she puts the power back in the hands of creators. Leslie is a speaker on writing, editing, publishing, and entrepreneurship, and she's a contributing author to more than a dozen books. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I appreciate it. So, Leslie, you're a believer that authors should not be giving up such a large percentage of the revenue from their work. What made you want to change the traditional way that books are published? Well, I started my career with my business partner in a traditional publishing model. So the two of us worked at a feminist press. And I'm not sure if most of your readers know, but when publishers take on authors because they take on most of the risk of production and printing, what most authors end up taking home is about 8.5% of their royalties that are earned. And in fact, most books, um, when authors are given in what's called an advance, and that's an advance against your royalties. And so that amount of money that you're paid in the beginning, until that's earned out by book sales, you don't make anything else. And a lot of authors, that's what you make, um, because book sales can vary a great deal. We just think that the model now makes it so that there are very few writers who can actually make a living from what they're doing. And we wanted to expand the options for authors who were willing to take on some of that financial risk and some of the creative control of producing the book. And in exchange for that, we felt that they really needed, they deserved to have the lion's share of the proceeds. Leslie, let's back up for a moment and just talk about the different publishing models. What are they and what are the pros and cons of each? It's a great question. And it's so confusing to folks who aren't in the publishing industry, just as it was to me before I was in the publishing industry. So what most people think of when they think of book publishing is what we refer to as traditional publishing. And that's your Penguin Random House or your your HarperCollins. And those traditional publishers acquire books. They pay um, the author in advance against their royalties. And then Really, they take on the onus of publishing, but also they um, take on the responsibility of the creative control. So a publisher will definitely have a say in your title, in the final form that your book takes. They have a relationship with a distributor. And so one of the great things about traditional publishers is that your book will appear in all of those places that you know, we sort of imagine they would appear. Your book could appear, for example, in an airport bookstore or just in your local bookstore or in Barnes & Noble on Amazon and also in places like Target or Walmart. So their relationship with a dis- distributor and their ability to get the physical book out into a lot of locations as well as their professional experience in producing the book is what makes a traditional publisher really a great option and has made a traditional publisher, you know, the powerhouse and sort of the gold standard for decades. What is hard is that oftentimes there are limited types of authors and types of books that get acquired because they just can't take the risk on some authors um, or other topics that are new or aren't proven. They have very long timelines. And because they're taking on the printing, the distributing, the production of the book, 
they pay the author very little. So those are sort of the pros and the cons of of a traditional publishing deal. There are a lot of people who also feel like they haven't made it unless they get a traditional publishing contract. And I'm hoping that that begins to shift, but that is definitely out there. There are also independent publishing options. And um, what that means is you, it's, fee for service. So you pay a range of professionals or you can pay one firm to help you produce a book. Some people do it entirely on their own. And then you can publish it directly to platforms such as Amazon. What There's a new technology called print on demand, which actually isn't that new, but it's pretty fantastic now. So that the second the consumer orders a book, that is when the book becomes created and then shipped. And so obviously those storage costs for all of these books sitting in a warehouse, that's not happening. And the quality of those books is amazing. That is true physically. Now, some independently published books, you can definitely tell that there wasn't maybe a professional team involved. So obviously it depends on the help that you get and it also can be quite expensive to get that help to professionally um, publish an, an independent book. But that is another one of the options. And in the middle is hybrid publishing. And there are some really reputable firms and some really not reputable firms, which has complicated this space a great deal. But in this space, authors pay for part of the production of the book. And in exchange, they get a larger share of the royalties, different Hybrid publishers have different distribution agreements. Some people may be able to get their books in all of the places that a traditional publisher would be able to stock their book. Um, others, that's more limited. And hybrid publishers often have that professional team that can help you make really good publishing and editorial choices for your book. But again, that's going to involve more capital on the part of the author. And you would definitely have to do your due diligence to find out um, which firms are reputable and where your book is going to end up, as well as their different royalty share agreements with those. So those are really the three main options. Well, you know, and I work with a lot of authors, many of whom have gone the traditional route. They get those big book deals. But for the average author, they're under this misconception that when they get that big book deal, Random House or Penguin is going to heavily market and sell their book. And, you know, what I've learned, and I'd love your thoughts on this, what I've learned is that authors are pretty much, no matter which model you, you select, you're pretty much on your own selling your own book. And so the, the thing that makes an author attractive to a traditional house is having a large following because they want you to sell your own book. But if you can sell your own book, maybe you should go with a model like yours or a different one because then you're keeping the revenue. I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I think that that is one of, that's one of the biggest myths that I would love to explode because it doesn't make the traditional publishing model bad. But what people do need to understand is that if you are an author these days, you are an entrepreneur and you are going to be expected, whether you're traditionally published, published through a hybrid, independently published, to aggressively market and publicize your own work. And that has always been true um, for traditional publishing houses as well, but it's even more so now with the advent of social media and different ways to do digital marketing and now that so many books are being discovered online. And so we've had a lot of folks come back to us who have had these traditional deals and they were like, but I was the tiniest fish in a big pond. And these big publishers are relying on these mega bestsellers to make money for them. And really the amount of support that your book is going to get, maybe editorially, maybe marketing and publicity wise is going to be pretty minimal. And I'm, I don't necessarily fault them for that. That is their business model, but it's really good for authors to understand that because unless you're a really big star, that onus is going to fall on you anyway. Um, and so being able, if you are going to do most of the work, as you're saying, and you're going to, you know, the amount of work that you put in and sort of your hustle is going to directly, you know, affect the sale of those books. For some people who are able to lay out that capital in the beginning to receive so much more for every book you sell, that might be a really good deal for you. 
What do you say to all of the people that are forming their own little publishing companies and going on an Amazon creative space or something like that and putting out their book without really investing in the editorial or design side? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I come to this as a former editor and writer, and there are very few people who have the ability to put their best book out there without getting professional help. And I say that just because that is true of any profession. There are very few of us. We often use sort of the the metaphor of a kitchen remodel. There are very few of us who would be able to gut my kitchen and do a really professional, incredible job being my own architect and my own general contractor and doing my own specialty work, such as plumbing or electrical. And I think because books, you know, at their base, it's just expression. It's someone writing their thoughts, their ideas. We think that it's more accessible than it really is. But, at the, you know, by the same token, anyone can pick up a hammer. That doesn't make me a contractor. Right. Um, and I would, you know, but I'm very cognizant that we're skilled workers. And so it's more expensive than a lot of people Um, expect or are prepared to pay. And so there are lots of options out there for sourcing and, and, and getting help. And I would just really encourage people to think of this as a book is a product. It's not the same as just scribbling down thoughts. And so really think of it that way and think of it with a marketing plan and a budget. And that doesn't cheapen it. It actually elevates it. You're always reflecting your brand. I mean, whatever you put out there is a reflection of you, your brand, your work. So you always have to put your best foot forward and bring your A-game. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I mean, as a writer, I would never, ever want anything to go up there without <laughs> an editor coming after me. I would, you know, I would die rather than just put it out. So it, it, it is. I mean, and especially we have lots of folks who their book is their brand. It is the tangible expression of um, of who they are in the world and how they want to connect with people. And so why wouldn't you want that to be incredible? And if you would like to learn more about Leslie and her work, you can visit GirlFridayProductions.com. Leslie, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is if you are an author, you're an entrepreneur, and treat yourself like a small business owner and give yourself every benefit and to put your best foot forward. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joe. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Did you know that fostering a truly diverse and inclusive organization adds to the business value proposition? Diversity, equity, and inclusion can be an especially intense and emotional topic in business, media, and politics alike. Generally, because this topic calls for change, it is met with resistance. What does diversity and inclusion really mean? Diversity is defined as understanding, valuing, and celebrating the uniqueness of each person and recognizing how individual differences enrich your organization at all levels. These differences appear along many differing dimensions beyond gender, age, race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. Inclusion allows all team members to be treated fairly and respectfully. Equity is access to opportunities and resources so all can contribute fully to the organization's success. When you have an organization like this, you approach challenges from all directions with solutions from every angle, which lends to achieving greater results. Your team and clients both feel recognized and appreciated. Because of this, businesses such as these gain success in collaboration, sales, business relationships are strengthened, investments are secured, and overall positive culture is established. To further this discussion, call me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit my website, staronprofessional.com. life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Allison Carmen, a business consultant, life coach, and author of The Gift of Maybe, offering hope and possibility in uncertain times. Allison's podcast, 10 Minutes to Less Suffering, provides simple tools to reduce daily stress and worry. Allison's new book is A Year Without Men. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me, Joan. So, Allison, as the new year begins, many of us set goals and intentions, and no matter how hard we may try, we end up experiencing some unexpected turns, things that we didn't think would happen end up happening. So how can we keep from getting too caught up in the disappointment when things don't go the way that we planned? That's a great question, Joan. The the interesting thing about disappointment is, of course, we have the right to feel what we want to feel. But after a while, disappointment becomes the story of how we thought our life was going to happen or how we thought outside events were going to happen. And of course, now we're all experiencing that. A lot of people thought they were going to go back to work. And now with COVID on the rise, people are home again, there's school closures, all these things are happening. And sometimes what we do is we look at the unexpected and because we get so disappointed, it starts to sink us. And we start to believe that our things that we want are not possible, or we let those low emotions get the best of us, or we let the fear get the best of us. And when that starts to happen, instead of finding a new way to be out in the world, what we do is we kind of stop trying. And sometimes the fatigue and the disappointment kind of get to us in a, in a, in a way that we forget that we are the generator of our own light. We are the ones that manifest in our lives. So we have to be careful because what disappointment does, it pushes us so far out of ourselves that we start to let what happens outside of us dictate how we feel inside. And really, though, how we feel inside is really going to be the reason whether or not we create, the whether, whether or not we manifest, whether or not we find another way to get there. That's another thing, too. It's like disappointment is sometimes just a roadblock, but there are other ways to get there. And we forget that because the disappointment kind of makes us feel that we can't have the life that we want. Well, so much of your work is around teaching us to embrace uncertainty. And, and you just touched upon fear. And, you know, when you were saying what so many of us are experiencing today, fear is really making us feel like everything is outside of our control. So what can we do when everything feels that way? Well, you know, it's interesting for the new year, I think the best thing that we could do is we could start by looking at what we want in our lives. I mean, the most important thing for all of us is to have a meaningful life. So I think that, you know, we have to be careful. We have to, we should set our goals for the year, of course. You know, what are our dreams? What do we want to achieve? And then we need to look at what our intentions are and, and what actions we can take. And then, yeah, that, there's that moment that, you know, we have our goals, we have our intentions, and then life gives us something different. And that's when the fear kicks in. That's when we start to believe I can't have what I want. I'm afraid things can't get better. I don't know how the situation is going to work out. So what I do is that I take this third step during the new year, and I actually do it practically every week. It's not every day. You know, I ask myself what my fears are. And sometimes, you know, a lot of people's fears today is the pandemic will never end, or I'll never get the job I want, or I'll never have the relationship that I want. And just that fear knocks us down. So we don't even try to take action steps and we give up on our goals. But when you look at your fears, what's so interesting about your fears is they're not absolute. If you say to yourself, am I absolutely certain that fear is true? You can't be certain of anything. And that's what's such a beautiful moment is that you question your fears. You Fears are uncertain. And then when you start to recognize that your fears are uncertain, you get to kind of turn it around. And, and I know I talk about this a lot on your show, but then you look at the maybe. Because what we forget is that uncertainty brings good things, too. And maybe is the hope within the unknown. And what I do is I say these maybe statements. Maybe things will get better. Maybe things will change. Maybe there are many ways to be okay. That's a beautiful maybe statement for the new year because it, it unhooks you from that fear. And it reminds you that you're not stuck and you're not doomed. And things will always keep changing. We don't, you know, we're so, like, when something bad happens, we get so fixated on it, we forget, again, that uncertainty brings good things, too. So set your goals, look at your intentions, but also question your fears and incorporate that beautiful idea of maybe into your life because you never know what's going to happen next. But that's a good thing. And also, you know, keep the light within. Know that you are the generator every day. Try to keep letting go of that disappointment. Because disappointment is just a story about how we thought our life would be. And when we open up to what life, what's happening in the moment, and we open up to more possibilities, and we open up to the fact that the unknown brings good things, life starts to change. And over time, we will move closer to our goals. And the unexpected won't affect us that much because we know that we're the one that creates in our lives more than anything. Allison, in addition to staying in maybe, is there an exercise or a strategy you can share with us that can help us stay focused Well, I think the goals and the intentions and the maybe, I think that's a beautiful daily practice. 
But I also think, you know, I know a lot of people talk about gratitude as well, but I think what happens too when we get disappointed, we start focusing, hyper-focusing on what didn't happen. It's like there could be one major disappointment in our life, and then we forget that we still have a lot of resources. We still have loved ones. We still have friends. We often still have money in the bank. We still have time. So what gratitude does, it reminds you that you still have things to work with because sometimes disappointment makes you feel such deep lack that you fall into despair. And again, despair is just our need for certainty, our need to know this is what's gonna happen, but we forget that so many beautiful things could happen. So I think a gratitude practice as well will keep reminding you that you still have resources and you still have things left. And you know, what's so interesting is that disappointment is not, not solid and it doesn't take away our potential. We forget that we always have potential. And, and potential does not change from life events. It doesn't change from when you don't, when you're not happy when something happens. You just have to remember that good things are still possible, and what you want is still possible because what you desire desires you. So again, set your goals, your intentions. Use those maybe statements to quiet the fears, and use the gratitude practice to find those resources. And again, the light is from within, and we are the creators. And the more we kind of keep letting go and opening up the creativity within us and the power within us and the uniqueness within us will shine through and eventually we will find our way. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic, you can visit alisoncarmen.com. Or as always, to hear more from Allison, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Allison. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.